you have a Bible, if you would turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and I will be reading verses 6 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that your spirit would prepare our hearts to receive it. We pray that as we know of your great power, uh, that you have disarmed and will disarm the principalities and powers, we thank you also for this redemption that we know that we have in you. And I pray that we would live our lives and order them accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. My parents met and married in Shadron, Nebraska, not terribly far from here. It was where they would spend the first few years of their married life, and it was where my sister and I were born before they moved the family to Wyoming. I was too young to remember Shadron. It was around the time of my first birthday that they made that move. Um, but they would tell me stories of what it was like in Shadron. Now, Shadron is the home of Shadron State College. And one story my parents like to tell is that the college there built a brand new student union building. It was beautiful. It cost a lot of money. It was something that would attract students and give them a place to spend their time. But this building had one problem. The soil and ground conditions of western Nebraska aren't the best. It's very sandy and a lot of strange stuff going on with the ground. And unknown at the time, part of that building was built on a fault line. So not long after its completion, part of the building started to sink. And it went quickly, and eventually uh, part of that building had to be condemned. It had to be torn down, even though it was brand new. The foundation was lost, and everything else was lost with it. 
Now, foundations are important, not just for buildings, but for people. We live in an age where many people lack foundations or are quick to abandon their foundations. Foundations are being broken down all over society. We see, for instance, the redefinition of the family, which really amounts to the loss of the family. Just some statistics. In 1965, 85% of children lived with both of their parents who were still married. By 2017, that had dropped to 65%. Uh, Some estimates say that number is even lower now. We see the redefinition of marriage. Kids being raised with two moms or two dads, or even now the transgender revolution, the claim that there can be things like pregnant men. Divorce rates hover around 50%. More and more children come from broken families. The culture presses people to abandon foundational values. There's a certain attitude to think that the things that have always been believed and always held society together are backwards and outdated, and we know better now, and so we need to deconstruct, we need to embrace progress. But what we really get at the back end is we get a society that seems by many accounts to be descending into more ugliness and chaos. Now, this loss of foundations doesn't just apply to these worldly institutions like family and the like. It also applies to faith, and it applies in the church. We are constantly surrounded by people and ideas that seek to get us to move away from the Christian faith, the faith once for all delivered, towards something else. Now, sometimes the appeal can be explicit. Reject Christianity and come join another religion. Come be a Buddhist. Come join Islam or be an atheist or or some other faith or lack thereof. Deconstruct your faith because it can't be right and you are able to stand in judgment over it and find out how it may have harmed you. Now, Perhaps sometimes this appeal is more subtle, it's more sneaky. Yeah, you have Christianity, but but isn't it okay to accept other beliefs too? Yeah, God teaches this or that about moral behavior, but isn't that just cultural from back then? Or isn't it outdated? Should we maybe overlook God's word on certain issues to avoid causing offense? We should really just get with the times and get with the program. We see these kinds of appeals being made at the church all the time. Today, as we continue this series in Colossians, we see Paul's appeal to a church of Christians who are facing a lot of pressure to move off of their foundations. There's a lot of new false teaching, new trendy ideas around them about angels and about spirits and ceremonies and rules to follow. And these Colossians are facing a lot of pressure to embrace them. And so what does Paul tell them in response Don't move. Stay where you are. Paul wants them, and the Holy Spirit wants the church today, to hold firmly to our foundations. Hold fast to the faith we have, and to entertain no others. You can't go anywhere else, because what you have here in this faith is life. Jesus Christ is the source of life. Do not move away from the source of life. So we will look at this appeal today in three points. 
for steadfastness in verses 6 and 7. Second, a standard in verses 8 through 10. And third and finally, a sealing with an S in verses 11 through 15. So steadfastness, standard, and sealing. So first, we look at steadfastness in verses 6 and 7. Now the last thing that Paul had written before this was his rejoicing in the good order of the Colossian church and the firmness of their faith. Paul is confident, even though he has never been to this church, has never met them in person, that they have a true and firm faith in Christ. This is what has been reported to him. What the Colossians have received is sufficient for their salvation and to keep them and guard them against attacks from the world. Now, building on this point, he begins in verse 6. As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord... So Paul maintains this confidence in the Colossians' faith. These people know the gospel, they trust in Christ, and no other for their salvation. They know the first part of the catechism about what man is to believe concerning God, and now they need to deal with the second part, which is their duty, their obligation. What are they supposed to do as a result? So Paul exhorts the Colossians to walk in Christ. Because they are in Jesus Christ and have salvation in him, there's a way they ought to live, a way they need to walk, a way they ought to express thankfulness for what God has done to them in their salvation. They are to continue as they have started. But this ethical application must remain grounded on its foundations, which is what we see in verse 7. Paul talks here about being rooted No roots is the foundation of plants and trees. They're being built up and established, so like buildings on a good foundation, unlike the one that I've mentioned in my earlier example. Where I'm from, in Wyoming, we get some crazy and destructive winds. Winds of 50, 60 miles an hour happen pretty regularly. Now part of the consequence of this is there's not many trees. But the trees that are there have to be tough, and in some of the places in Wyoming, it's so windy so much of the time that the trees actually grow crooked. They get so much wind blowing on them as they're growing that they actually grow into the wind. So even when the wind isn't blowing, they kind of lean over as though the wind were being, yeah, as though the wind were blowing, and it's kind of a strange sight. But in order for these trees to even be there in such harsh conditions, they have to have good roots. They have to be well into the ground, because otherwise a wind like that hits them and they're just going to blow over. Out behind the church here this summer, while I was here candidating, some trees had to be cut down because they were at risk of falling over. They no longer had sufficient foundations to hold them up. Now, not only are roots of a tree the foundation that holds them up, but they're part of the tree's nourishment and sustenance. Roots pull the nutrients out of the soil. They pull the water out. They keep the tree having the resources that it needs to stay alive. Now, just as a tree has to be properly rooted, Christians must be properly rooted to Christ, who is our source of life. We've talked before in Colossians about The relationship between Christ and his people as that of a head to a body. 
If the head is missing, the body dies. Simple as that. Similarly, a tree severed from its roots dies. If you get a Christmas tree, if you get a real one, you stick it in your living room for a few weeks, it might stay green, but eventually all the needles are going to fall off and make a big old mess, and you have to throw the tree out because the tree is dead. So similarly, we are dependent on Christ for our life, and we're only alive if we are united to him. Now, not only are these roots used as illustration, but Paul, too, brings up this example of buildings. We are built up and established. I've already talked some about what happens to a building without a good foundation, but another of Paul's texts, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, makes this connection more clear. When it says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So there Paul speaks about the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What is that? Where do we have the teachings of the apostles and prophets compiled and preserved for us? That's the Bible. That's Scripture. We have the prophets of the Old Testament. And by the way, all of the Old Testament is in some way held to be prophetic, not just the explicit books of prophecy. And then we also have the witness of the apostles in the New Testament. So we have the whole of Scripture which is to serve as our foundations. Now we also see in that Ephesians text that Christ is the cornerstone. What does that mean? Well, back in the first century when Paul was writing, building wasn't quite as sophisticated as it is now. They didn't have laser levels and fancy tools and all the surveying and architectural techniques that they have now. So a cornerstone was vitally important to a building project, because since they didn't have all these tools and technology, the cornerstone would be cut as closely as possible to a perfect square. And the reason they would do this is that the walls would come from the cornerstone, because it was in the corner, and they would follow whatever line, whatever pattern the cornerstone sets. So if your cornerstone was off, you were going to have problems with your building. The walls weren't going to be straight. They wouldn't come together like they were supposed to. So just as I talked last time about Christ as the highest mountain of biblical revelation, everything before him pointing to him, everything after pointing back, he is also the cornerstone. He is the most important part of the biblical foundation we have, the part that holds all the other pieces together. In Colossians 2.7, Paul talks about the Colossians being rooted, built, and established just as they were taught. Their faith is in a teaching. Their faith has an object. It has a particular content. It is not faith as just some vague feeling. Faith in faith. No, the content of faith is the foundation. It is the ground in which we are rooted. It is Jesus Christ as he is revealed in all of Scripture. That is where we are established. 
that is where we are to remain. But it is not enough that we are to be rooted there. Because we have this foundation and source of life, which is sure in Christ, we respond in thanksgiving. That we have so great a salvation and so firm a foundation, it produces in us a response. Set on our foundations and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we do truly strive for and begin to love God and love one another. And so now, having looked at steadfastness in our opening verses, we now turn to our second point, which is our standard. So Paul warns the Colossians, Beware lest anyone cheat you. Now, this is a warning of real danger. This word that is translated here as cheat is more severe than the word cheat might actually tell us. This word was actually typically associated with the capturing and carrying away of slaves and prisoners. This is the only time that this Greek word appears in the Bible, but it communicates the seriousness of the warning. What does it mean to get carried away as a slave? There is nothing but suffering and captivity and eventual death. It's a permanent, irreversible captivity would be akin to the horrors of human trafficking that we hear about in our day, where a person can be deceived and kidnapped and forced into slavery, stripped of any identity or agency, and never seen or heard from again. So to fall into a trap like this, to be cheated like this, is to fall into death itself. But if these earthly examples are so horrible, how much more horrible is it to be carried away with eternal implications. To be in the covenant community and then snatched away never to return. To leave the straight and narrow path for a path that leads to death and hell. Truly, this is a terrifying reality. Now, what are the means by which one might be snatched away? Well, Paul lists some. First, philosophy. This criticism by Paul of philosophy and empty deceit was likely a direct strike at the Colossian heresy. Remember that the Colossian heresy is probably some syncretism of Judaism, the pagan folk religions of the area, and trying to meld those together with Christianity. So part of that is it's taking worldly philosophies and trying to combine them with Christianity and make Christianity compatible with these philosophies. How often do we see this in our time? People try to take worldly philosophy, worldly thinking, and force it upon the church, as though the church needs it. Even in ostensibly Christian churches and schools, there are wild speculations and attempts to bring worldly ideas and thinking in, and to try to lead the people of God astray. Paul makes clear that this is empty deceit. It's going nowhere. It's vain. The Colossian heretics are setting bait, something deceptive, something on the surface that looks good but kills. Now, one such appeal of the Colossian heretics has something to do with what is translated in the text here as basic principles. Now, that word translated here, basic principles, it appears elsewhere. It appears in Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 and 9. And there it's talking about the state of God's people before Christ. It is something that served a purpose once, 
but is not to be turned back to. And so this lends further credibility to the idea that the Colossian heresy has something to do with going back to Jewish ceremonial observance. This was very much the problem in Galatia, where Paul wrote Galatians. The heretics there were basically requiring people to become Jews before they could become Christians. And Paul warns against this, this same word here. Now, this can be a powerful appeal. God did give us the Old Testament. So it's not bad, it can't be bad, but then some go so far and say because of that, we need to follow the ceremonies, all of the laws of the Old Testament, the feast days and the washings and all of the things that go with that. There's a big movement now, it's called Hebrew Roots. They claim to be Christian, but they want to keep all of the ceremonial laws. They Try to keep all the festival days and Saturday Sabbath and all of these kinds of things. The scriptures clearly condemn returning to the types and shadows of the ceremonies. Because these ceremonies were meant to point us to Christ. And once Christ is here, we don't go back to the types and shadows, the things that pointed forward to him. Texts like Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 make this case very well. We don't have to abide by the ceremonial law, so I don't have to, for instance, kill a goat and sprinkle its blood on you here in worship today. Aren't you glad? We are not required to enact the civil law of Israel, except as general equity may require, as our confession says. We can extract moral principles that might make good law in our day, but we don't have to enact or enforce the Mosaic civil law. The purpose of that law was to be a law for national Israel. And with national Israel of that time being gone and having provided a people and place for Christ to come, that has been fulfilled. We don't have to do it anymore. Now, the moral law still binds everyone forever, but these civil and ceremonial laws, we don't have to go back to them. Now, part of the appeal of this Colossian heresy with its moralistic qualities and its attempts to keep laws, either Jewish or pagan philosophical laws. As we will see in the coming sections of this book, Lord willing, one of the marks of the Colossian heresy was an insistence on keeping certain regulations, certain days, festivals, ceremonies, abstaining from certain foods. And all of this is empty and vain legalism. It doesn't mean that legalism isn't sometimes a powerful appeal. Who doesn't want to live a more holy life? There are lots of legalistic groups out there who draw people in with their legalism. Well, I know that group, they have some weird beliefs, but look at what moral upstanding people they are. Look at how good their families are run, how well behaved their kids are, how they relate to each other in business. That can't be bad, right? Surely if they were false teachers and heretics, their lives wouldn't look so good, right? But alas, there is a fatal flaw. For legalists, those who try to save themselves by keeping of laws, don't have the truth. You can be a, by worldly standards, moral and upright person and still die in your sins apart from Christ. Only in the gospel 
The pure gospel, unstained and unmodified by such legalistic invasions, is their salvation. This is how Paul ends verse 8. Contrasting all of these worldly things, he says, they're not according to Christ. Whatever you have, or whatever people are telling you you need, your philosophy, your system, your moralism, your Jewish ceremonies, they are nothing if they are not according to Christ. They are enslaving, they are ensnaring. Christ is the standard. Whatever we're being sold is not consistent with Christ and his gospel run away. If I ever get up here and tell you something that is not according to Christ, run away. Because Christ is preeminent. He is God and he is our only Savior. To break from him is to break from life itself. Paul reaffirms this in verse 9 using an expression similar to one we've seen before. In him, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells. As we looked a couple weeks ago, Jesus is God in all the ways that God is God. To know God is to know Christ as he has revealed himself. These heretics, they're promising a fullness of spirits and angels and deities that would get the Colossians closer to God Paul says, no, in Christ you have all of it. You don't need any of these other things. In Christ you have been filled, as he says in verse 10. You lack nothing. Not only in Christ do you lack nothing, but in Christ is the head of all rule and authority. As we are his body and he is our head, we are inseparably joined to his life. As he lives, we live. Thus, to be separated from Christ, to place anything between us and Christ, is to be severed from life itself. And as our head, Christ rules over us and rules over all things. So any rule that is contradictory to his rule must be placed aside. Christ is the absolute standard by which all other things must be measured, and to depart from his standard is to depart from life. But having now looked at our steadfastness and our standard, we might be at a point, at this point, a bit concerned about where we stand. If there's all this peril and danger around us, where might we look for hope? What is here? We turn to our third point, sealing. So look with me at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, where's that coming from? Why bring in circumcision here? Well, circumcision was given to Abraham to be the sign and seal of the Old Covenant. Every male child, then eight days old, received it. And it was a permanent marker that the child was a part of the covenant people. Now, it did not necessarily guarantee one's regeneration or salvation. Many were circumcised and were yet outside of salvation. Ishmael was the first of Abraham's sons to receive circumcision. Yet he lived and died outside of the covenants. Jacob and Esau were both circumcised. Yet Esau despised and rejected God's covenant promises. Yet Paul is assuring the Colossians here that they have a circumcision of the heart, one made without hands. What is he getting at? 
circumcision, one of those ceremonies of the Old Covenant. It was a bloody sign. It required the cutting off of a son and bloodshed. Seems like that might be pointing us somewhere. The reality that circumcision was pointing to, the one that it was a sign and seal of, was the promised Christ. His cutting off, His bloodshed, and His suffering and death. The end of verse 11 speaks of our putting off the body of flesh. Because we are united to Christ, this includes union with Him in death. The old man in us has died. Paul makes this clear in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So we have passed with Christ from death into new life. But my title of this section is Sealing. So what does this have to do with sealing? Well, the answer comes in verse 12. Buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So we have here this clear connection drawn between circumcision as the old covenant sign and seal and baptism, the sign and seal of the new covenant. Now this is really important. These verses help to show us the continuity between the covenants and the covenant people. The continuity, but also the change from these bloody Old Covenant signs pointing forward to Christ and baptism as this unbloody New Covenant sign pointing back to Him. Now, also implicit in this, is the administration of baptism to children. Those born in New Covenant families receive the sign and seal just as those born to Old Covenant families did. It is the sign and seal of Christ's work for them and the life they receive from him. Now, it does not create the reality, because those who are baptized may never come to true faith. Salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit in his time. And yet, baptism does mark God's people as God's people. It is a sign and seal of his gospel. And we see the gospel in it. We see the passing through the waters of judgment. In fact, we'll see more of that tonight when we look at the book of Jonah. The sprinkling of water as Christ's blood was sprinkled. Just as we have been united to Christ and passed with him through his death, we are raised to new life through faith, which has worked powerfully by God in us. The same God who raised Christ from the dead also raises us to new life and preserves us in that new life. And this is signified and sealed to us in our baptism. We are reminded of it every time we witness a baptism. We are sealed in Christ. Now Paul tells us the reality of circumcision and baptism in verses 13 and 14. We were dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of the flesh. What does it take to make a dead person live? Nothing can do it. If I fell over dead right now and was really dead, that would be the end of me. There'd be a funeral, a burial, and you wouldn't see me again until heaven. And yet spiritually, all of us were dead in sins and trespasses, this uncircumcision. And yet we received the circumcision without hands and that God made us alive together with Christ. Now, how did God do this? Well, we see here several parts. 
First, he forgave all our trespasses. Not some of them. Not only the ones before, but the ones to come. Now, for our trespasses, we had earned death. But the sentence was never carried out on us. Now, second, he canceled the record of our debt. The word here that's translated handwriting of requirements, it was a legal document, a record of a debt that is owed. It's a bill that comes due. In fact, it was due the day we were conceived because of Adam's original sin. And we could never, ever hope to repay this debt. But Christ canceled this debt. This was the work of redemption. But it wasn't just canceled just because. God didn't look at our sin and say, no big deal. He cannot do that because he is holy and just. Instead, we see the solution at the end of verse 14. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It was not that this debt that we owed was merely overlooked or ignored. It was paid by another. It was paid by Jesus Christ. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, our sin was nailed there with him. Jesus Christ bore the full penalty of sin and death and hell that we deserved. He drank in full the cup of God's wrath, and only in this could the record of debt against us be canceled. As we saw in verse 12, God raised him from the dead. This was the validation, the vindication, the justification that God accepted Christ's sacrifice as payment for our debt. So now we have the glorious and hopeful reality of verse 15. In this work, Christ disarmed all rulers and authorities. Imagine charging into some sort of battle and then suddenly losing your weapon. That is what it is to be disarmed. Those who made war against God, even those who were bringing false teaching into the Colossian church, and those now who would accuse us, his people, and seek our destruction, suddenly they find themselves in a battle with no weapon. They had nothing left to fight with. They're totally defeated. Now, not only are they defeated, but the text says they're put to open shame. Christ has fully triumphed over them. Christ, the sure foundation, has triumphed over all who would try to move his people off of him. All powers of darkness and evil do not stand a chance against Christ. And to a church facing false teaching, this is great hope. This reality that we remember in our baptism provides the same hope. The person and work of Christ is ours, and it is victorious. We do not have to give in to the lies of our enemies or fear them. We have life, true life, eternal life, abundant life in Christ alone. The philosophy, the legalism, this other stuff that the false teachers promise, they can't deliver on that, nor can anything else. If we are in Christ, sealed in Christ, united to Christ, we have everything we need. So we have seen here today steadfastness, how we are to remain on and be built upon our foundation, which is Christ, as a tree rooted or a building on a cornerstone. We have seen our standard. We are to test 
all spirits and philosophies against the word of Christ revealed to us in all of Scripture. And if they don't match up, they have to go. And third, we have seen our sealing. Christ has accomplished our salvation, and he has signed and sealed it to us in our baptism. So what are we to do with all of this? Well, first and foremost, we must remember Christ and remain steadfast in him. He is the source of life. He is the only true way to salvation. He is our standard of truth. Without him, we are hopeless. But it, with him, we have everything we need. But we also can have confidence because Christ has defeated all enemies and put them to open shame that he will powerfully keep and preserve his people for the last day. We can have confidence that if we belong to Christ, he does not lose even one of his people. But if you hear this today and you are not in Christ, the call is to repent and believe this gospel of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, for forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life. Perhaps you find yourself today without a foundation in a lost and dying and chaotic world. Perhaps you're here today realizing the guilt and weight of your sin. Well, in Christ, the record of your debt can be nailed to the cross, so you bear it no more. Come to Jesus and live. And in Christ, you receive a sure foundation against which none of the challenges of Paul's day or ours can stand. Will you be found on this foundation against the storms of this life and this world? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. We thank you for Christ, our sure foundation, knowing that there are no other sure foundations, but that in Christ you guard us, protect us, and preserve us. We thank you for our baptism, that in that you have given us the sign and seal of this deliverance that you have won for us. And I pray that we would stand firm against the philosophies and the evils of this world, and that you would guard us and keep us and preserve us until the end. In Jesus' name, amen.